what triggered to me was his bicarb of eight and his PCO2 of 16. So a lot of people don't realize that the first indicator, the best indicator that someone is going to go in the wrong direction quickly is actually hypocapnia, meaning a low PCO2. Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. Hey everybody, you are in for a special treat. Today, I am welcoming back to the podcast uh, and back by popular demand, might I add, my favorite nerdy nurse practitioner, Christian Guzman. So Christian, welcome back to the Rapid Response RN podcast. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you having me back. And I can't believe that I was back by popular demand. I can't believe you <laughs> actually like listening to me, but... I'm going to go there with There might it. be people that it. like nerding out just like you do. All right. So in case you missed it, I had Christian on my show earlier this year to talk about DKA. Um, if you haven't had enough of him by the end of this episode, you can check out episode number 18 to nerd out even more on the metabolic derangement of DKA. But I have gotten so many messages from you guys saying how helpful that DKA discussion was and asking me to bring back Christian to the show. So he's back. And this time he has a case to share with me. So, but Christian, before you do, can you just give us a quick background? How long have you been a nurse and what type of nursing role are you currently in? Oh man. So I, it's coming up on 10 years, <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost, almost a decade. So I was a burn ICU nurse. That's actually how I met Sarah. She was there my first day of charging, which was hilarious because I was petrified, <laughs> but yeah, I was a burn ICU nurse for <clears throat> about four and a half, five years, something like that. And then I became a nurse practitioner. I went back to school through Georgetown University, Go Hoyas. So I worked after school, I worked as surgical critical care in the beginning, mostly trauma. And then I kind of like focused on cardiothoracic ICU. And then over the past year, I've been the director of advanced practice providers for my group, but I had to take a step back for some personal things. So I'm cutting back clinically. And now I'm trying to Actually, I'm trying to do transitional care post ICU visits at home and doing some telehealth uh, just for flexibility. But I'm also learning that it's actually a lot more fun than what I thought it would be. And I thought I didn't think I would like it this much. So still in the ICU transitioning to more like outpatient telehealth stuff, treating patients with long term critical critical illness complications. Yes. That's where I'm at. And you're a new dad, which people don't know. You're like sitting there with your baby monitor while he's taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here with the baby monitor, hopefully not waking the beast, but I think he's he's pretty out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is this is real life recording podcast while your baby is sleeping and I'm here. Oh sitting in my closet. <laughs> okay. So Christian, let's talk about this case. You gave me like a quick synopsis, but I can't wait to hear more about it. Go ahead and just share with how things went down. And if I need to interrupt you, if you're nerding out too much to break it down a little bit more, I will do that. It's just, I'm just letting you know in advance this was going to happen. So ready, go. 
Okay, so the case that we that I really wanted to talk about was the case of a, a gentleman in his 60s, past medical history, hypertension, diabetes, schizophrenia, bipolar. They found him unresponsive at home, and he he was on his right side. So he was laying on his right, unresponsive, was on the floor, and was complaining of severe pain on his right arm, had an altered mental status and was a little bit tachycardic and like in the one teens and a little bit hypotensive systolics in like the 90s to low 100s without taking any antihypertensives so the initial rapid response was he was acting strange and his heart rate was a little high his blood pressure was a little low Um, strange like more strange than he usually would with schizophrenia and bipolar And that's the question, right? So that was what was brought up was, well, is this close to his baseline? We don't know. We don't have any family. He's speaking in like, he's doing this like rapid, short sentences, like speech that is speech and like conversation that's very typical for someone who's bipolar, schizophrenic. So we really couldn't tell. So we just chopped it up to maybe he missed his meds. It's been a couple of days. So he might be having an acute exacerbation, but let's send him from the floor to the progressive care unit and let's send off some labs. So his notable labs were a creatinine of 3.1, a a bicarb of eight on the chemistry, sodium of 129, potassium of 4.8, chloride of 111 and we drew an abg and his on his abg his ph was 734 bicarb of 8 on the gas pco2 mm. of 16 so mm. with no, so from there we decided to bring him up to the icu okay so i'm sure people are like but why? <laughs> why I see you for that ABG? So, yeah. And I think that's the comment. That was pretty much what happened when we brought him up to the ICU. You know, he's talking, he's conversational, he's drinking, he's thirsty. He's, I mean, voiding in a urinal. Like why, why does he meet ICU criteria? And I think this goes to the crux of this podcast and what I wanted to talk about, and that's ABGs in general. So whenever I go to a rapid response, and I think to a lot of people's annoyance, and I think this was probably ingrained in me from when I was a bedside nurse, the first thing I want is either is preferably an ABG, if not a VBG. And I order a, a blood gas because not because of oxygenation and not even because of necessarily ventilation, like are they hypercognitive? Those are things I look for, right? But if I don't know what's going on, the person's talking to me, they have a good saturation at the bedside, I still want an ABG. And the reason I do is because an ABG is a quick test that tells you a ton about the patient. Mm -hmm. So what was his clinical presentation? Looking at him, he didn't meet ICU criteria, but looking at his gas, you know, we first we looked at the pH. So the pH is 7.34. A little bit on the acidotic side, may, you know, you could argue that that's not even a derangement. Yeah, like definitely uh, not red flags to me with that pH. No. And that and that's and that's totally reasonable, right? That's pretty much within range. What triggered to me was his bicarb of 8 and his PCO2 of 16. So 
a lot of people don't realize that the first indicator, the best indicator that someone is going to go in the wrong direction quickly is actually hypocapnia, meaning a low PCO2. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is people don't have, right? A normal person does not have a PCO2 of 16. The PCO2 right. normal range is 35 to 45, right? Right. So then you can say, well, there's people who have, who are chronic retainers, who have COPD and lung disease. Yeah. But those people get used to a other end. (laughs) It's the other end. Exactly. It's the other end. Is he like hyperventilating a bunch or. And, and so looking at him, he didn't, he was a little diaphoretic. He was breathing a little quick, but also remember when you're, when you put somebody on a ventilator, right? We shoot for um, six mLs per kilo of ideal body weight to eight mLs mm-hmm. per kilo of ideal body weight. But the average person actually generates way more than that, like 12, 14, even 16 mLs per kilo of ideal body weight. And they could generate their own minute ventilation up to mid twenties, low thirties. That's why like going back to my DKA podcast, the last thing you want to do is, is put somebody on a ventilator when they're severely acidotic unless they're starting to tire out. The reason is because I, with a ventilator, we cannot do as good of a job if, if your body's able to sustain it to generate that minute ventilation than you are, right? So this guy was probably pulling large tidal volumes and breathing a little bit quicker. But you know, let's say, for example, he's breathing 800 mLs of tidal volume, mm-hmm. right? If he's breathing 20 times a minute, that's 16 liters a minute of minute ventilation. Right. So that's, that's, that's a, that's a good amount. So looking at this ABG, he's hypocapnic. Okay. Why? So that should trigger, (laughs) right. So why, why is that happening? So you start to look at, you know, is he in pain? Is he agitated? He's schizophrenic. So he could be having a crisis. And he has that right arm pain. And he has that right, right. Yeah. So he has that right arm pain and, you know, you can make that argument. Okay. Maybe he's, you know, just hyperventilating from pain, but what do you think would happen if you're just hyperventilating from pain? Your pH is going to go higher because theoretically, if all you have is pain, then you're, you're not, you don't have any other metabolic derangement to bring your pH lower. Right. So then so the fact that what, his CO2 level didn't line up with his pH, that was the big red flag for you. That was the big red flag for me. That was a huge red flag for me. And then the next question is, you know, how long is he going to sustain this? How long is this? Is he going to be able to do this before he tires out? How fast would you say he was breathing? He was breathing definitely in his mid to mid to high 20s. Okay. He's taking large, deep breaths. And he's being able to generate that, that tidal volume and that minute ventilation. You know, if you look at somebody, you know, if you, if you put somebody on BiPAP and you look at their minute ventilation, when they're in respiratory distress, like a DKA person, it'll measure their minute ventilation. You'll see sometimes you're generating 30 mLs of minute ventilation. It's, it's, it's impressive what the body can do. All right. So He's breathing kind of fast, but not scary fast. You get the ABG and like, oh shoot, let's go to the ICU. So what mm-hmm. was the treatment in the ICU? We know his bicarb is low. So then at that moment, 
you have to say, okay, so he definitely has a metabolic acidosis. Uh, then you have to go and you have to determine, okay, well, is his, obviously his pH is on the lower side. You know, does he also have a respiratory alkalosis? Cause you could both two things could be true at the same time. So then we have to work up the metabolic acidosis. So how you work up a metabolic acidosis is there's two main types. There's a, an anion gap metabolic acidosis and a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. So your anion gap metabolic acidosis is like your DKA, uh, your lactic acidosis. Those are your two main ones. Then your non-anion gap acidosis, it's mostly going to be diarrhea because you actually poop out a lot of bicarb. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be actually giving a ton of saline and increasing your chloride. So we checked his anion gap and his anion gap was, was elevated. So, okay, we checked his lactic acid and his lactic acid was nine. So we'd now remember the source of that thing. <laughs> right. So now let's go back to what we talked about in the beginning. The only reason we brought him up was from an ABG. So you got this ABG. We go through this whole process. Now we've just, now we send off a lactic and we discovered his lactic acid is nine, man. He's complaining of a lot of right arm pain. It's a little bit more swollen, but let's, you know what? Let's just, we're going to scan him. We're going to scan his chest. We're going to scan his abdomen. Let's scan his, his arm. And on the scan of his arm, we find what's called stranding. So stranding is are like inflammatory changes that you see in tissue. So a lot of times you'll see stranding in the bowel and stuff like that on your mm-hmm. CT scan. That's indicative of like some sort of inflammatory process that's going on, but we find stranding in his right upper extremity. So putting two and two together, he's a diabetic. He, we don't really know what's going on. Does he have necrotizing fasciitis? We ended up calling the surgeon. The surgeon goes to the bedside. And, you know, at this point, this gentleman is talking to us. He's, you know, literally having conversations with us. His family's at bedside and the surgeon wants to take him to the operating room. Well, everyone's kind of like, well, oh my gosh, what are we doing? This is, this is, oh, this is a lot he consents to his own operation. Okay. And he, and lo and behold, they open up his arm and it's all necrotizing tissue, all tissue. That's just necrotizing from the infection. Hmm. So, so the treatment was before he went to the OR, we, with the lactic of nine, we aggressively, aggressively, aggressively resuscitated him. Um, gave him a ton of fluid and uh, got him to the OR. LR, <laughs> I'm assuming. <laughs> LR. So can I go <laughs> on this tangent? Yes, I've heard it a million times, but yes, tell my listeners about how much you hate saline. <laughs> so going back to metabol- to the metabolic acidosis, where we were discussing anion gap and non-anion gap, So a common thing you'll see is a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. And the main reason we see is because their chloride's high. There's a lot of reasons why you have hyperchloremia, but in the hospital, common things being common, the number one culprit is normal saline. So normal saline is the traditional fluid of choice. And that came out actually. So the reason normal saline is a traditional thing is because that was actually one of the first crystalloids that was given during a cholera outbreak, I believe in the 1800s. And 
the study at the time showed either giving patients water like by mouth or giving them saline who did better obviously the patients who got saline cool mm -hmm. so we traditionally used it it's super cheap and all that but if you look at the composition of say of saline saline is sodium chloride nine zero point nine percent that if you break it down is 154 equivalents of sodium and 154 of chloride and if you look at the pH of it, it's actually close to like six point something. I, I don't have the number right in front of me. I think it's um, five something. It, it, it might be five something. I don't have, I wish I had the number right in front of me. I wasn't anticipating going on this tangent. Until right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's actually pretty acidotic, right? So yeah. that's when we started coming up with these solutions such as lactated ringers and more recently plasma light. So the real question is, well, does it really make a difference? And they've studied, so they've studied quick, it. I just Googled it. It's 5.5 is the pH of saline. There you see. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah, for proving my point even that much more. Um, so they've studied this, right? And they've, you know, does it really make a difference? And if you give like one or two liters, it really doesn't make a difference. The problem is when you're giving more than three or four liters, then it becomes an issue. It actually makes your chloride go high. Well, why is that dangerous? There's this concept of electroequilibrium, which is essentially your body will do everything to make sure that you are at an even charge. So if I give you a bunch of negative charged ions, you're going to get rid of a negative charged ion. Mm -hmm. So the two most common ones are chloride and bicarb. If I give you a ton of chloride, what's going to happen? You're going to get rid of bicarb. That's number one. So that's number one. Number two, when you're hyperchloremic, it actually causes renal vasoconstriction. So you're getting a decreased blood flow to the kidney. And, you know, this is probably the main outcome that's been studied with large volume resuscitation. And it shows that you have a higher incidence of AKI of a renal replacement therapy and of mortality. If it's larger than, if it's more than three or four liters of crystalloid, well, what happens? This guy has necrotizing fasciitis. So he's septic. Right. Lactic acid's nine. His blood pressure is a little soft. He's tachycardic. He's septic. So what are we giving? How much fluid are we giving? We're giving 30 mLs per kilo. Well, if you think about it, a person who's 100 kilos, which is about 200 pounds, which for an adult male is not really that out of, you know, it's not right. that crazy to imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you're going to give about three liters of crystalloid just to start with. So right. in the, in this gentleman, I, I chose to aggressively resuscitate with lactated ringers. The other reason I chose lactated ringers and is because when you go and you give lactate, lactate actually gets metabolized into bicarb and he actually had a bicarb deficiency. Right. So it's something more balanced. The pH is more neutral. So mm -hmm. aggressive resuscitation was the treatment for this guy with lactated ringers, a balanced crystalloid. <laughs> Tangent over. That's, is there any time where you would not want to do LR or you would shy so, away from it? Yeah. So I think a lot of people, so with if your sodium is low, Okay, so I think two populations where people are like, okay, don't do LR because the sodium content of LR is about 130. So when people are hyponatremic um, and when people have some sort of brain injury, going and giving and increasing your sodium will cause the swelling in the brain to shrink a little bit. And that's why they give it with neuro patients. Also, you have like things like cerebral salt wasting where you're getting rid of a ton of sodium. So that's that's totally 
acceptable. If you're hyponatremic, I could, I could understand why I would never fault anybody for that. This guy's actually a perfect example, right? So he's hyponatremic. His sodium was like 126, yeah. right? So why did he have hyponatremia? Well, what ends up happening is that if you're so intravascularly depleted, you actually become hyponatremic. It's called hypovolemia hyponatremia. And that's because your body actually releases out ADH, right? Mm -hmm. ADH, how that works is it actually inserts aquaporins into your renal tubules. And mm -hmm. what aquaporins are, they are little tubules that allow only the reabsorption of water. So when you release out a ton of ADH, you're actually absorbing just pure water. So mm -hmm. you're hypovolemic, you're you have a literally a sodium deficiency and all you're doing is uh, reabsorbing free water. You're going to be hyponatremic. So how you would treat that is not, you can give saline. That's not, again, that's totally standard of care. And I would never fault anybody for doing it, but I would stand firmly on my ground that giving LR to this patient would probably correct his sodium because he's going to get better renal perfusion. He's going to correct his acidosis, correct his hyperchloremia, reduce right. his kidney injury, so on and so forth. So, gotcha. but those are the two, those are the two main ones is if you're hyponatremic and if you have a brain injury. Okay. Sarah's right. also laughing at me because when I said aquaporins, she's like, oh my gosh, this guy. <laughs> like, so I took advanced pathophids in my master's degree program and I feel like I might've retained like maybe... 80% of what I learned in that class. I think that you literally just memorized every word in the glossary and you're like, I'm going to use this again. I'm going to use this word. I'm going to get my money's worth out of this class. I'm going to use this word because <laughs> I do not remember any aquaporins from grad school. <laughs> so All right. I, I think that so happens with a this lot. Patient. Yeah. <laughs> so he oh, goes to the my. OR. What do they do with the neck fascia? <laughs> So the mainstay treatment for necrotizing fasciitis is number one is antibiotics, right? And it's actually surgical debridement. So they go, they open it up, they debride out all the dead tissue, dead stuff, yeah, all the dead stuff, and they irrigate and they irrigate until you know it's it's clear back. Now it's actually funny. So necrotizing fasciitis, you could have stranding and you could have a like air in your in your right. on your CT scan. Like, but that's kind actually of like green, right? Right. But it's not actually the diagnosis of it. Necrotizing fasciitis is a clinical diagnosis and it's only definitively diagnosed in the operating room. And gotcha. what they do, what they do is they go and they irrigate it out. And if you have what's called dishwater appearance, like you go and you irrigate and it looks like nasty dishwater, that's indicative of, of necrotizing fasciitis. It's not unusual for that infection to keep going to that right. necro that necrotizing process to keep going on. So Start broad spectrum antibiotics. Now, what you want to add in your broad spectrum antibiotics with anybody with necrotizing fasciitis for at least 48 to 72 hours is either clindamycin or linazolid. And the reason why those two is because they actually inhibit toxin release. So that's actually a really key important part of this case is, you know, when the minute that they were, the person was already on broad spectrum antibiotics to begin with, just because he met a, a sepsis trigger. But when I saw the stranding in there and we thought that it was necrotizing fasciitis, that was the first thing I did was add clindamycin. And it's just because I have a good amount working in the burn unit, a good amount of experience working with necrotizing fasciitis that I just, you know, that clindamycin is one of the antibiotic regimens. So right. 
you leave them open for a day I'm say, or two. I would close that up, right? Got to see how no, it evolves. You it, yeah. You leave it open and it's not unusual for them to go back to the operating room one, mm -hmm. two, three times after. That being said, you know, because of that, like this guy is serzing, right? So this guy, when you go and you debride off all that dead tissue, you're actually mixing some of those toxins in with blood, right? Because you debride down, debride down, you're bleeding, right. right? When you're bleeding, you have exposure to blood vessels. So all those toxins are going to go into your bloodstream. And is, is serzing a technical word that you learned in your nurse practitioner program? Because I did not learn that one either. <laughs> you just made that no, one up, didn't you? No, Sarah, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, for those who don't know, SIRSing, I'm assuming he refers to SIRS or SIRS, Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, which is when the body freaks out because there's foreign bodies being infection. And so it's trying to mitigate that by sending a bunch of fighter cells to handle it, um, among okay. other things, space violation, a bunch of things going on. All right, continue. <laughs> Yeah, but be because of that, you actually will get like hypotensive tachycardic and like your resuscitation's only just beginning at that point. So did he have to go on pressors and stuff after he came he up did. from the OR? Um, so from the OR immediately, no, because we aggressively resuscitated him. But and I then mean, he started sursing. Then he started sursing. <laughs> we keep the technical terminology, Sarah, he started serving and eventually he did. So initially, no, we kept resuscitating and it gets to a point where you can only give so much fluid and the person's just vasodilated and they need vasopressor. So we started our typical sepsis vasopressor regimen, which would be levofed first line and then vasopressin when you start going up on your levofed doses. Yeah. All right. So how did he do? So he actually survived. He made a really great recovery. He survived. He did very well. He went to the OR two more times. They got good margins. He went to a rehab facility, extubated, neuro intact, but you know, awesome. not, you know, he's, he does have, he did have those comorbidities right. that, you know, those psychiatric comorbidities that, you know, you got to take into consideration that also, you know, leads into its own complications. Like, is he going to be compliant and so on and so forth? So, but he did overall, he did fine. His kidneys recovered his creatinine and everything corrected. So he That's did. Awesome. So yeah. let me just summarize the whole case really quick. And then I'll have you kind of chime in some extra pearls or bits of wisdom that you want to share with the, with the listeners. So patient comes in, kind of a odd presentation. He's a little bit tachycardic and a little bit soft blood pressure, but nothing's blaring ICU just yet. And then was it the change in mental status that made him call the rapid response? What, what was the, it was, for the it rapid? Was, it's interesting because it wasn't, and this goes back to like what I said on my last pod podcast and what I kind of like, like to preach from the mountains is, you know, nursing intuition is an indicator of patient decline. It is. And mm -hmm. the nurses just did not feel right. So, you know, his blood pressure was in the low 100s, high 90s, but his MAP was always 65. But think about it. This guy has a, a history of hypertension. So who knows what his baseline blood pressure was? Right. And his heart rate was a little higher, like 90s, 100s, 1 teens. Like it just, and he was acting funny now the acting but funny, then you're like well is he tachycardic because of his psychiatric background and he's just upset right. or exacerbated yeah. in some way like it's there's so many ways you could just write that off but you, what you can't write off is nursing intuition <laughs> that you have to like follow right and you know i think 
looking back, I think that the reason the nursing intuition went in and kicked in was because, yeah, you could base the tachycardic, but the whole picture doesn't make sense. Why is his blood pressure a little lower then? Why is his heart rate a little higher? Mm-hmm. You know, I a hundred percent that nursing intuition is so on point. And I think we don't give e- our, each other enough credit, but man, that's what caused, that's what triggered it. And look at everything that happened just because that one nurse was like, no, something isn't right. You know right. what? I'm going to call a rapid response. Perfect. Okay. So patients, um, a little bit red flags with the tachycardia and the soft blood pressures, but otherwise humanly stable. And then but seems so far to be a PCU player because those vital signs aren't like, oh my God, start them on pressers. Yeah. But then when right. you got to the PCU and we got some more lads back, that's when you saw the ABG that you're like, that's really weird. The CO2 is just not lining up with the pH of 7.34. That doesn't right. seem right. Let's go to the ICU because this could get bad real fast. Um, that's definitely a weird finding, but I'm sure some of your colleagues are like, I've done this before. The patients roll to the ICU, like waving at us. Hi, everybody. And you're like, why is this patient going to the ICU? Are they sick enough for ICU? But his labs were. And then as you did further digging, you realize, oh my gosh, his lactic is also high. This guy's got a raging infection. You get to the OR. Oh my gosh, it's necrotizing fasciitis. We got to do some massive antibiotic shifts and we're going to have to really resuscitate this guy. But because like you said, that one nurse was like, this doesn't feel right. All this evolved and turned into treating this patient appropriately and not just blowing off his little tiny indicators, but like really looking into them. So, all right. What would you say are the main takeaways from this case, as far as for a bedside nurse, what should be red flags for them with both from the clinical presentation, but also like the lab values that you found, just summarize that for me. Sure. So I think the first takeaway that I always, that I, I try to always say, even though I'm not a perfect person, I have my flaws, but my first takeaway is always nurses, trust your gut, trust your intuition. If you think something is wrong, then something probably is wrong and there's no shame of asking for help. And that's why, you know, it takes a village to take care of these patients. So this per this nurse's intuition likely saved this patient's life because if this patient would have sat without getting timely debridement, that necrotizing fasciitis would have spread and he could have potentially lost his arm. And I've seen it spread within minutes to hours. So this is a perfect, this takeaway right here is a perfect example of a nurse trusting her gut and saving a patient's life. Even when people, even when people are giving, they are giving them a hard time about it. Whoever this nurse was saved this patient's life without a doubt. Awesome. Awesome. Now that's number one. Number two, and the the reason I I, I went on this podcast is the main takeaway is the ABG is underutilized, is an underutilized test. It's quick and it tells you so much about this patient. I could have not gotten any other lab and seen this patient's ABG and brought him up to the ICU because number one, Remember that hypocapnia is an indicator for patient decompensation. So you have the respiratory alkalosis uh, portion of it really going and shooting a red flag. And then you also have the bicarb of eight. People don't have a bicarb of even renal failure patients, chronic kidney disease patients. They're on bicarb at home. They're getting trended. And even before their bicarb gets to eight, they're getting checked up and followed on and put on bicarb tablets. So this ABG 
was a two minute test. It, it all it took was somebody to get some blood and put it in a little in a little machine at the bedside. And it helped determine me to bring up this patient to the ICU. I think we as bedside clinicians need to get out of this whole mindset of, oh, an ABG shows oxygenation and ventilation. Yeah, it does. But it shows so much more. And when you really start to see that test as a painter of a global picture, man, you will start to see you, your world will change and your treatment and every, the way that you treat patients will definitely change. So those are my two main takeaways. Also, saline is bad. <laughs> you just get up yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christian. Well, thank you so much for being on my show today. I, as usual, love talking to you. This has been, this has been a fun one. We might have to do it again, actually. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you so much for having me. You know, thanks to all your listeners. And I mean, just thank you for doing what you're doing right now. And I'm spreading the rapid response podcast gospel to all the places that that I go to. (laughs) Thanks, friend. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm happy. I'm proud to proud to have you as a colleague. So all right. Thanks, Christian. Well, I'll let you go before the baby wakes up. Have a good rest of your (laughs) day. Thank you so much. All right. You too, Sarah. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponserm.com.